Let's begin our topic tonight with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, thank you so much for the beautiful day that you gave us. Lord, it was an incredibly nice day, and yet we, we know that that's going to change. We know that it's getting cooler at night. We know that the leaves are falling from the trees. We know that winter is coming. We can see the signs of the times. And Lord, you also say that there are many signs in the Bible that we need to be looking for so that we can understand where we're headed. And Lord, tonight we're going to talk about one of those kind of topics. And so we're praying that your Holy Spirit will guide our hearts and minds. Give us wisdom. Give us knowledge. Uh, Help us to understand the truth so that we can be set free by the truth. But Lord, that also depends on our willingness to follow the truth. And so we're also praying that you will give us a hunger and a thirst for truth and that we would love the truth so much that we would even be willing to come out of our comfort zone to follow the truth. That's what we want, Lord, because we know that being a Christian is all about change. We should be continually changing more and more every day to be more like you. And so we pray that you would make those changes in us we can't make in ourselves. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, tonight we are talking about looking into Revelation's ark. And I thought that we would get started tonight by asking you a question. And that question is, what is happening to the values in America? Have you noticed over the last 50 years that crime and violence are increasing? Well, the problem is, is that many of our children are growing up uh, in, in a more and more turbulent homes, and as a result, our homes are breaking up by the millions. And if there is one place that the Bible says that the devil is going to attack in the end of time, it's going to be in our homes. There's a message in the book of Malachi that says that right before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, right before that second coming of Christ, that Elijah would come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And so I believe that part of the message that the church should be giving today in these last days is one of unifying of the family. But the problem is that it has become a societal problem. Our children are raising themselves, and the values of the younger generation are not what the values of the home are. The values of this younger generation are being shaped by their, by their favorite pop star. They are being shaped by other people, other than the parents, other than the family. They're being shaped by society. I remember years ago when my wife and I, we had three daughters, and we would take them clothes shopping. Even back in the 90s, we had a hard time finding clothes that were appropriate for young ladies. I can't even imagine what that's like today. But there is this competition that is going on between society and the values in the homes, and they're often different And, uh, you know, in my day, years ago, it used to be that the values of society mirrored those of the values of the home. I remember when I was a kid, if I would go over to a friend's house and I did something wrong, I got in trouble right then, right there by that parent. And I knew 
that when I got home, I was going to get in trouble again because by the time I would get there, they would have called my parents and told them what I had done wrong. But, you know, that's just not the case anymore. Dr. Sherbert Frazier wrote a book called Psychotrends, and in it he speaks of co-violent society that celebrates mayhem while simultaneously condemning it. In other words, we talk disparagingly about murder, and then we watch it on television. It's like the rugby player who says to his playmates, that's it, I can't do it anymore, this game is too violent, I quit. And he walks off the field, up into the stands, and sits down and watches the game. Friends, we, uh, we cannot be watching those things that Christ died for and then try to instill into our children those values that are different than that. And so I ask you, what has happened to American values? You know, we become Christians and we get into this place where we think that we've left that all behind, but then we watch it on TV. You remember the Columbine school shootings? This was one of the the most dreadful examples, and there have been many others since then. But what's interesting about this particular one is there were these two young men who, who basically went into their high school and terrorized it, killed some 12 or 13 people, and wounded many others. But what came out later in the investigation was that apparently these two young men were into violent video games. And they even named their pipe bombs after the characters in those violent games. And so they were embracing society, and we have this competition that is going on in the values of the home and society. In fact, the Bible says, by beholding, you become changed. In other words, what comes into your mind by what you watch, what you listen to, what you do, the friends that you hang out with, the things that come into your mind come out in your life. And the question that I want to ask you then is where is all of this heading? Sociologists tell us that there is no end in sight and we are lacking in any kind of moral compass. Now we know that God has a moral compass, but our society at large has turned its back on God and on His moral standard, which is the Ten Commandments. Now, I wish that we could blame that on society. I wish that we could blame the world and say that it's their fault. But unfortunately... I think a great deal of the world's impenitence lies, at least in part, at the door of the church. You hear what I said? I think the majority of the impenitence of the world lies as a result of what the church is doing because the church, in a large part, is responsible for taking away the moral compass of God's law. You remember in the Old Testament that God told Moses to have the children of Israel to build a tabernacle so that he might dwell among them. 
And you see in this picture here on the screen the, the tents that, that where the children of Israel lived. And in the center of their camp was the tabernacle. And this area out here uh, around this fenced-in area was called the outer court. And then if you go in through the entrance, you come into the inner court. And then inside of that is the tabernacle. And so if we take a close-up view of that inner court... When you come in, the first thing that you see is the brazen altar. That's where they sacrifice the animals. And then just to the left of that is the laver. And that was just a giant bowl filled with water where the priests would wash their hands. And then to the left of that, you see the entrance into the tabernacle. And if we take an even closer look up of the inside of the tabernacle, and you see that's where this priest is standing... When you come into the tabernacle, the first thing that you notice is that there are several items of furniture there. When you would come into the tabernacle and you look to the left, the first thing you would see is that seven-branch candlestick, which was symbolically pointing forward to Jesus Christ as the light of the world. And then you look to the right and you would see that table of showbread, which was pointing forward to Christ as the bread of life. And then there where that priest is standing is the altar of incense representing the prayers of the saints and the prayers of our high priest Christ mingling his with ours and sending them up to the Father. And then there in front of that altar of incense was a veil. And on the other side of the veil, there was another compartment. Now, this first compartment was called the holy place, and that second compartment is called the most holy place, as if holy is not enough, right? You have the most holy place, and that most holy place was half the size of the holy place, and in that most holy place, there was just one article of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant, And that is where God, uh, represented by that light, that Shekinah glory that came down and dwelt between the cherubim. On top uh, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant was two angels, two cherubim, and and it symbolized God who dwells between the cherubim. And then underneath them was the mercy seat, and underneath that was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that Ark of the Covenant was what? The Ten Commandments Laws. I want to show you that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 25. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and so that's going to be page 89 in your seminar Bible. But I want you to look at Exodus 25 and notice what it says in verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. And so we might ask ourselves, well, what's the testimony? Well, turn with me to Exodus 31 and notice what it says in verse 18. The Bible says, And when He, that is God, had made an end of speaking with Him, that is Moses, on Mount Sinai, He gave Moses two tablets of the what? of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So here we see that that testimony that is being spoken of is in fact the Ten Commandment law of God written in stone by the finger of God. And here in this picture we see an artist's rendition of what they think that looked like. 
Now, in Exodus 25, verse 16, it said that the testimony was to be placed into the ark. Now, let me show you something else. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. That's going to be page 1416 in your seminar Bible. Now, what I want you to remember is that on the first night, you remember we talked about the keys to unlock Revelation? And one of those keys we said was that we needed to understand that the book of Revelation is taken from the perspective of God's sanctuary in the heavens. You remember me talking about that? All right, well, notice what it says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. John is in vision, and he says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and what was seen there? The Ark of the Covenant, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquakes, and great hail. Now, the the reason that I point that out is because I want you to think about something for a moment. Remember that God said to Moses that he was to make the tabernacle in the wilderness after a pattern of the true tabernacle in heaven, right? Okay, so if everything in the earthly tabernacle was a pattern after the one in heaven, and we know that when they put all those articles of furniture in that tabernacle, and that Ark of the Covenant was there, and what went inside of it? The Ten Commandments. We just saw that, right? We just read it in Exodus. Now, if we know that that's patterned after the one in heaven, when John saw the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, what do you suppose was inside that Ark? Ten Commandments, right? Okay, I just want to point that out to you so you can see that. Now, what I thought we would do is let's just do a brief review of the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to go through every single, uh, specifically the words, I'm just going to paraphrase them, but notice what the Ten Commandments are. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment says that you shall not make for yourselves any idols, and you shall not bow down to them. The third commandment says that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. The sixth says you shall not murder. The seventh says you shall not commit adultery. The eighth says you shall not steal. The ninth says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the tenth commandment says that you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And so there are the Ten Commandments. But sadly, a large number of Christian pastors and teachers today are building a case against the Ten Commandments. Now, the reason that this is being brought up in a prophecy seminar and specifically unlock revelation is because of the place of the law in the heavenly sanctuary. And we're going to see why that becomes an issue at the end of time. But I want to suggest to you that part of the breakdown of the moral fabric of society is because of this teaching of many pastors and teachers today. Sadly, a large number of churches are teaching that the Ten Commandments are no longer applicable. 
and I'm going to share with you the things that they are using as their argument, and then we will look at what the Bible says about those. And so the first argument, a case against the Ten Commandments, there are people that say the Ten Commandments are a yoke of bondage. Ever heard anybody say that? No? I have. I think some of you have, but yeah, that's what they're saying. Now, let's see where they get that from. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. That's going to be page 1340 in your seminar Bible. Galatians is in the New Testament. You have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and right after 2nd Corinthians is Galatians. And then you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And you know how to remember that? George eats popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or General Electric Power Company, right? Or you could just say Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right, so I've wasted enough time. Are you there? All right, now notice what it says in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with what? With a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who what? Attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Now here is how I would respond to those who say that the Ten Commandments are a yoke of bondage. The first thing that I would say is Paul is not speaking about obedience to the Ten Commandments. Did you catch that? Right? Paul is not saying that obedience to the Ten Commandments puts you under a yoke of bondage. What he is saying, and you can look at it again there in verse 4, he says, you who attempt to be justified by the law or by keeping the Ten Commandments. Right? So he's not saying you who are obedient to the law. He's saying you who attempt to be justified by the law. Now that brings up the question, what does it mean to be justified? And that simply means to be saved by keeping the law of God. To be justified is is to be considered just as if you never sinned by God. Or to be made right by God. Right, And so what Paul's saying is anyone who is trying to be saved by keeping the law, they're under a yoke of bondage. But he's not saying that being obedient to the law of God is what puts you under that yoke. Now, there's a difference between uh, someone who is trying to earn their way to heaven and someone who comes by faith trusting in Christ, right? That person who's trying to be saved by, by uh, doing what's right, by, by uh, going to church, by paying a faithful tithe, they're trying to somehow earn favor with God, then that person is under a yoke of bondage. But simply because you're being obedient and following the commandments of God, he's not saying that that's what puts you under a yoke of bondage. But think about it this way. Imagine that you are just come to the Lord. And now you have some teenage children and you want to teach them about God. But they don't have any interest in spiritual things. 
right? So what are you going to need to do in order to have a Bible study with them? Well, you're going to need some chains and handcuffs and some ropes, right? Because they're not interested. They don't want to sit down and listen to that. And so what's it like to them? It's like a heavy weight. It's like a burden. To them, it's a yoke of bondage, right? Because they're trying to earn salvation by doing things outwardly, and they haven't been converted. They have never had that born-again experience. They've never surrendered their heart to God, and so therefore, they are not interested in those things at all. And you try to have that Bible study with them, and you're going to have to tie them down. And then still... They're not going to do it, right? Because their heart is not in the right place. Now, it's just because of the fact that they're not interested, right? They have not had that born-again conversion. And so, if they're trying to do it outwardly, but they don't have the heart for it, then to them, it's work. You think about someone who doesn't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. What's it like for them? They come to church... A couple of times a year, right? But if they tried to come every week, there would always be an excuse because to them it's work. It's a yoke of bondage. And that's what it's like for someone who's trying to be justified by the law without having that conversion, without having that born-again experience, without having the law of God written in their mind and in their heart. Now let me tell you, why I think that Paul is not saying that to obey the law is a yoke of bondage. Because remember what we talked about already. How do we study the Bible? Isaiah 28 verse 10 told us you have to put line upon line, precept upon precept, and put things together, right? And remember what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, that all Scripture is inspired by God. And so what does that mean? It means that it all has to be in agreement. It all has to fit together perfectly without error or contradiction. Because God's not going to inspire one writer to say one thing and, and inspire another one to say something else. And so let's look at the rest of the Bible and let's see what God has to say about this yoke of bondage. Notice what Romans chapter 7, verse 12 says. It says, Therefore, the law is holy... And the commandment, holy and just and good. So clearly, Paul doesn't have anything bad to say about the Ten Commandments, does he? He says the commandments are holy, they are just, and they are good. Now notice what he says to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 13. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Where do we read about that? That's the fifth commandment, right? And so here he's pointing the Ephesians to the fifth commandment, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And so notice here that Paul is pointing them towards the keeping of the fifth commandment. So if Paul really believed that the commandments were a yoke of bondage, then guess what? He just put the Ephesians under a yoke of bondage, didn't he? Because he was directing them to keep the fifth commandment. And that, but that's not what Paul was saying. He was talking about those who were seeking to be justified by the law, not those who were being obedient to the law. Now let's look somewhere else. Let's go in our Bibles to Romans. If you still have your Bibles open to Ephesians, just go back a little bit. 
Romans is right before 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And I want you to go to chapter 2. And I want you to notice what it says starting in verse 21. That's going to be page 1295 if you're using that seminar Bible. Paul says to the Romans, he's saying to us, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? Notice here that Paul says, you who preach do not steal, do you steal? What's that? That's the eighth commandment, right? And then he says, you who teach not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery yourself? What's that? That's the seventh commandment. And then he's talking about you who abhor idols. What's that commandment? You shall not make any idols. You shall not bow down to them. Second commandment, right? But notice what Paul finishes up that passage with. He says that by not keeping the commandments, what are you doing? You are dishonoring God, right? So clearly... Paul is not saying that keeping the commandments of God put you under a yoke of bondage. Because here he is saying that if you don't keep God's commandments, then you are dishonoring Him. Apparently, the Apostle Paul felt that there were people there that were teaching them to keep the commandments, and then they themselves were not keeping the commandments. And he says that when you break the law... You dishonor God. This is the same Apostle Paul who said that you would be under a yoke of bondage if you sought to be justified by keeping the law or trying to earn your salvation by keeping the law. Notice what King David said in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It keeps me in bondage. Is that what he says? No, he says, I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Uh, David would have never thought that the law of God was a yoke of bondage. But he loved God's law. Notice what the Apostle John said in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 3. This is the love of God, that we keep His what? Commandments. And His commandments are a yoke of bondage. Is that what He says? No, He says your commandments are not burdensome. They're not a heavy weight. They are not a yoke of bondage. And that's because the person who has the law of God written in their mind and in their heart, that person loves the law. That person loves God and they will keep the law of God not because they're trying to earn salvation but simply because they love God, right? I want you to think about an apple tree for a moment. An apple tree doesn't have to push and grunt and groan to produce apples. It's just a byproduct of being an apple tree, right? And the same is true of Christians. We don't have to push and strain and groan to try and earn salvation or to keep God's law. But we do it as a simple byproduct of the fact that we love God. Does that make sense? 
Look what James has to say about the law. Chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of bondage. Is that what he says? No, the law of liberty, right? That's because the person who has the law of God written in their mind and their heart, that person that has had that conversion experience, that one who has that personal relationship with God, to them, the law is liberty. They're not free now to disobey God's law, but now that they have the law of God written in their mind and in their heart, and they have the power of God to obey it, now they have the liberty to keep the law of God. Now they have the capacity. Think about this for a minute. Think about that person that you were trying to have that Bible study with. That you needed to have chains and handcuffs and ropes to tie them down. But now they've surrendered their heart to the Lord. Now they've had that conversion process. Now they, they have the law of God written in their mind and their heart. Now what's it like? Now they want to study the Bible, right? Now they want to be in church. Now they, you know, they're coming over to your house and they're like, man, you've got to study the Bible with me. You've got to teach me. I've got to know, right? And they're there and it's 10 o'clock at night and you're kicking them out the door and you're telling them, man, you've you got to go home. I've got to get some sleep, right? Because they're there and they want to learn. There's a huge difference between trying to do that with someone who doesn't have God in their life and someone who does. It's the Spirit of God that gives us the freedom. Well, let's look at the second argument in the case against the Ten Commandments. There are many people that say obeying the Ten Commandments is legalism. I want you to understand something. Legalism is not the same as obedience. You understand that? It is not the same. Legalism is what Paul was talking about when he said those who are trying to be justified by the law. They're trying to earn their way into heaven. They're trying to earn the favor of God, get points with God. And they're living under their own standard of righteousness. And so we need to ask the question, can God's law save you? What do you think? Can God's law save you? Hmm. Well, notice what the Apostle Paul said to the Romans in chapter 3, verse 20. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You will not be saved by the law. And so the question then is, what is the purpose of the law? Look in that same verse, Romans 3, verse 20, what Paul goes on to say. By the law is the knowledge of sin I would not have known sin except through the law he says in Romans chapter 7 verse 7 and then for I would not have known covetousness what's that that's the 10th commandment right I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet in fact the the Bible defines sin in 1st John chapter 3 verse 4 as what transgression of the law and that's why we read the other night about the antichrist in second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 we read that the antichrist is the lawless one right because he has transgressed god's law the devil hates god's commandments and he hates the people of god who keep those commandments 
In Romans chapter 4, verse 15, it says, Where there is no law, there is no what? There's no transgression. You know, people are saying that the law of God is not applicable today. But think about that for a minute. What's that saying? If there's no law, then there's no sin, and Christ died for nothing. That's really what that's saying. And so the law of God is like a mirror that points out our sin, but it can't save you. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine you walked in tonight, and uh, you know, you're saying hi to everybody, and everybody's just kind of looking at you, and and you're like, yeah, hi, how you doing? Everything's great, right? And then you get up and you go into the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you notice you got a great big black splotch on your forehead. Now, you didn't know that was there, right? Until you looked into the mirror and the mirror pointed that out, but you can't rub your head on the mirror and get rid of that black spot, right? The same is true with the law. As we look into the law of God, we see that we are sinners, but the law can't do anything about it. It can't do anything to save you. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. I wouldn't have known sin unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And so get this point. If there is no law, then there is no such thing as sin. And that's great news, isn't it? isn't it? None of us are sinners. But we know that's not true, don't we? Because we need a a mirror. We need something to point out our sin. But notice this. The law and the gospel are companions. They go together like hand and glove. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by what? By faith. We're brought by the law to Christ and saved by faith. And so someone might say, well, that's it, Pastor. That's just it. The law leads us to Christ and He saves us. So all we really need is a relationship with Christ and it doesn't matter whether we keep the law or not. Which leads us to the third argument in the case against the commandments. And that is that many people say, faith makes the keeping of the law obsolete. You ever heard anyone say that? But notice in Romans chapter 3 verse 29, this is where they draw that conclusion. It says, therefore, we conclude that a man that is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And so people say, see, you're saved by faith. And you don't have to keep the law. Now, let me try to explain what this is saying. You don't earn salvation by trying to keep the law of God. You don't earn salvation by trying to keep it outwardly. You don't earn it by trying to keep it inwardly or anything else. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we receive salvation. But Paul was so concerned that people were going to misunderstand this verse. 
I'd like you to go home and read Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 30. And you will see that for 30 verses, Paul is hammering away at the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. And then notice what he says in verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? And I am so grateful that he answers the question for us. Certainly not, he says. On the contrary, we what? We establish it. What is he saying there? He's saying faith is what brings the Spirit of God into the heart and enables us to truly love our neighbor, to truly keep the commandments of God. And this is the point that many people are missing today. They're wanting faith to replace the law when it is faith that brings the law into light. It makes it genuine. It makes it real. Now, let me try to explain this. I want you to turn with me to Romans 7. Hopefully you still got your Bibles open to Romans there. But I want you to notice what it says. Romans 7, that's going to be 1299 of your seminar Bible. But notice what it says in verse 8. It says, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. In other words, what Paul is saying there is apart from the law pointing out my sin, I thought I was doing pretty good. I thought I was a pretty good person. But when the law came, what did it do? Look at verse 9. When the law came, it pointed out my sin, right? Sin revived. And what's the wages of sin? Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us wages of sin is death, right? So what happened to Paul? He said, I died, right? Now, now what he's saying is, I realize now that I wasn't as good a person as I thought I was. That's what the law did. It convicted him that he was a sinner. It convicted him that he was a lawbreaker, right? Now, notice what it says in Romans 7, verse 10. He says, and the commandment, which was to do what? Bring life, I found to bring what? Death. Did you know that the commandments of God were intended to bring life? That was the original intention. If we would keep the law of God from our heart, if we would embody all of the principles and policies of the Ten Commandments, we would live. Notice what is said in the Old Testament. If we keep the commandments, we will live. Right? That was the intention of the law. But there's a problem. And the problem's not with the Ten Commandments, friends. The problem is with me. And here is what Paul is about to address. The commandment was supposed to bring life, but in me, he says, all it could do was bring death. And notice what he says. Look in verse 8 again. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, therefore the law is holy and just and good. 
He's saying the reason that I know that the law is so good is because it points out my sin so well. Right? He says, for we know that the law is what? Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. The law is spiritual. What that means is just because you don't physically kill your brother doesn't mean you've kept that commandment. Because Jesus showed us what it is to mean a spiritual law, right? He said if you have anger in your heart against your brother for no cause, then you've committed murder in your heart. And so the law doesn't just say keep me outwardly. It doesn't say keep me outwardly and like it. It says, keep me outwardly and keep me inwardly in your heart. Don't just refrain from committing adultery physically, but don't look at someone lustfully in your heart. The law of God is not just an external shell. I like the way the psalmist David said it in Psalm 119, verse 96. Notice what he says. I have seen the peak of perfection. But your commandment is even broader. David says, I've seen perfection, but your law is even more than that. Because it goes into the intents and into the motives of the heart. The commandments of God, as they were plainly explained by Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, touched not just on the outward shell, but the inside of a person's heart. And that's what it means that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Now, let's see what it means to be carnal. Look with me in Romans 8 and look at verse 7. It says, because the carnal mind is what? Enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. And because of that, notice what it says in verse 8. So then, those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. Isn't that powerful? Why can't those who are in the flesh please God? Because they are not subject to the law of God. Only those who have the law of God written in their heart, only those can please God. There's another verse that tells us, if any verse tells us that we ought to keep our hearts in tune with God, this is it. But we have a problem. Because we're proud. We're selfish. We have a carnal nature that is so bad that that verse says that in our carnality that not only are we opposed to God, but we can't even be made subject to God. And that's why a Christian is, is not a modification of a person. God has to give them a new heart. Right? God can't fix that old carnal heart. He has to give us a new heart. That carnal heart has to die. 
And you need to be made a new creation. Totally new inclinations. Totally new attitudes. Totally new habits. Totally new way of thinking. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what happens to a Christian. Because the carnal heart cannot be made subject to the law of God according to the Apostle. And here's what's beautiful about that. The law of God says, keep me and you will have life. It was meant to bring life. But my flesh doesn't love other people. Right? My flesh is selfish. My carnal nature is not in harmony with the law of God. It's not subject to the law of God. It can't be brought into subject of the law of God. God has to give us a new heart. Amen? We have to die to self. Now, notice, though, that there's a solution. Look with me in Romans 8, verse 3. He says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Why couldn't the law give us life? Because of our sinful nature, right? And the flesh was weak. We couldn't become subject to God. So God had to send His own Son to come in the flesh and take our place for us and pay our penalty for us and give us a new heart, right? He did that by sending His Son. And the righteous requirement of the law then can be fulfilled in us. Right? And he says, in us, meaning those who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So when you're born again, you receive that divine nature. The Spirit of God in you. And then the Apostle Paul says, now you have two natures. And that's a problem. Because that old man, you die... But that old nature is still there. And so now you have that carnal nature and now you have that spirit nature and they are at war with each other. The carnal nature wants you to continue the way you've always gone and the spirit nature wants you to do the things of God and be in in tune with God and keeping the commandments of God and they're at war with each other. And I ask you the question, which one's going to win? I've heard it. The one that you feed, right? So if you are constantly feeding the flesh, you are constantly watching those things on TV that draw you to that carnal nature. If you are continuing to read and hear and hang out with people that are in the flesh, when temptation comes, you're going to succumb to that temptation. But if you're feeding the Spirit... If you're going to church, if you're reading your Bible and praying, going to Bible studies, going to a seminar like this, what are you doing right now? You're feeding that spirit nature, right? And then when temptation comes, you're going to be able to overcome that because you're in the Word of God. You understand God's will for your life. You've got His commandments written in your mind and in your heart, and you are going to want to do what God wants you to do. Make sense? Amen. So the way to be spiritual, matter of fact, look in verse 5, Romans 8, verse 5. What does it say? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so the way to set our minds on the things of the Spirit is to surround ourselves with those things, those people that are going to encourage us to keep the commandments of God, that are going to be encouraging us to be in the Word of God and to be praying. And notice when we do that, what happens? Look at verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4. The righteous requirement of the law is then filled in what? In us, right? Because now the heart is changed. Now the attitude is changed. It is submissive to the law of God. And uh, it loves spiritual things. That's the beauty of the new covenant promise. Now let's see how well we understand this. Look with me in Romans 7. And notice what it says in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies... She is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. All this is simply saying is that the law says that if you're married to someone, you can't go and marry someone else. But if that person dies... Now you're free from that law. Now you can go marry someone else, right? Now notice what it says in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, namely to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. And here is where some people say, see, we're dead to the law. We just need to marry Christ And so we no longer need to keep the Ten Commandments. Now we simply just need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But friends, that is a slaughtering of the text. Look closely at it again. Look at verse 4. Notice what Paul says. He says, You have become dead to the law. Who is that you that he is talking about? He's talking about that sinful nature. He's talking about your flesh. He's talking about the carnal you, right? The flesh has died. You have died. You have become dead to the law, and now you are free to marry another, namely Christ, and the Spirit of God comes into your life and you become a new person. Has the law gone away? No. It's still there, governing the whole thing. The only thing that it says is that the flesh has died and now you're free to marry Christ. The the law is every bit as much intact as it was in the beginning. You are now free to keep the commandments of God. And why? Because that old flesh, that old nature has died. You have the Spirit of God in you. You have the law of God in you. And now you want to keep the law. And now you are free not to disobey the law of God. But now you're free to operate within the confines of the law. Now you're free to keep God's law because that old nature is dead. And you have the power of God to keep it. Remember the Old Covenant. 
God said to Moses, tell the people I want to make a covenant with them. And so Moses went down and told the people what God had said, and the people said, all that God has said we will do. There was no talk about we can't do it. There was no talk about we need help. God said, keep my commandments, and they said we will do it. And so Moses goes back up Mount Sinai to tell God that they agreed. And Moses doesn't even get back down with the Ten Commandments and they've already broken the second one. They made for themselves an idol, right? Because they were trying to do it in their own power. But when we have the power of God in our lives, now we can do it. And the law is there governing all the time. You see, the problem is not with the commandments of God. The problem is with humanity. The problem is with that sinful nature. And we need to throw out the flesh and keep the commandments of God. But there are many pastors and teachers today who are teaching we need to throw out the Ten Commandments. And here's a major problem. Because when you throw out the law of God, then sin is not identified. And when sin is not identified, your salvation is a farce. Look at argument number three. The law of Ten Commandments was nailed to the cross and abolished. You ever heard somebody say that? Yeah, there are people today that are saying the law of God was done away with at the cross, right? Well, let me show you where they get that from. Notice in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 what it says. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so people look at that verse and they say, see, the Ten Commandment law of God was nailed to the cross and it's no longer applicable. Now, does anybody here have the King James Version? Derek, what does that say there in that verse, Colossians 2.14? Here it says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. I think in the King James it says that handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Do you, do you have it there? Is that what it says? I'll give you a moment. I'll let you look for that. But But uh, I want to point something out to you that I think is very interesting. There are people that point to that verse and say that that handwriting of requirements, do you have it? Colossians 2, verse 14. Would you read that to us? Yeah, that's what it says there in the King James, right? Here in the New King James, it says handwriting of requirements, but there in the King James, it says handwriting of ordinances. But I... I find something very interesting here, and I want to show it to you. Turn with me back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. That's going to be page 239 in your seminar Bible. And I want you to look at chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And I want to show you something that I think is uh, exactly what is being referred to here. Notice what it says starting in verse 24. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, 
that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it where? Beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a what? Witness against us. Notice that that's the same language that's being used here. This handwriting of requirements that was against us. And here Moses is talking about this book of ordinances that was against us, right? Now, where was this book supposed to be kept? Beside the ark. Did you catch that? Now, I I want you to understand something here. The Israelites were given more than the Ten Commandment law. The real problem here, I think, is the English language. Think about the word love. You know, there's a lot of definitions of love, isn't there? I love my wife, I love my children, and I love pizza. But they're not the same thing, are they? And the same is true in the Bible when you're talking about the law. You have to be very careful that you look at the context of what you're reading. Because there was the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Then there was the sacrificial law or the ceremonial law or Levitical law, all the same thing. That had to do with the sacrifices. And then there was the civil law. The civil law said don't move your neighbor's boundary stone, right? The ceremonial laws or the Levitical laws or the sacrificial laws had to do with the sacrifices and the tabernacle service and then the ten commandment law had to do with god's commandment and so we have to be very careful that we know which law that we're talking about when we see that handwriting of ordinances that was against us which law is that talking about is it talking about the ten commandments like many people are implying So let me see if I can flush this out a little bit more. There is a clear distinction in the Bible between the sacrificial law, the ceremonial law, the Levitical law, and the Ten Commandment law. And I'd like you to notice the difference. First of all, it says that the Ten Commandments were written where? On stone. And this law of ordinances was written in a book. Right? Then the Ten Commandments were placed inside the ark, and this law of ordinances was placed beside the ark. And then we know that the Ten Commandments represent the moral requirements that God has for all humanity, for all eternity, but the law of sacrifices represented shadows and symbols that were pointing forward to the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And when Christ came and died on the cross, that sacrificial law, that ceremonial law, the Levitical law, was nailed to the cross because those things were pointing forward to Christ. And when He came as the Lamb of God and He paid that penalty once and for all, those laws were done away with. And that's why they were nailed to the cross. Now, Let me show you how the Apostle uh, sees this a a different way. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's going to be page 1315 in your seminar Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. That's in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
I'd like you to notice something that Paul says here, chapter 7, in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. First of all, let me ask you the question. In which law does it talk about the law of circumcision? The ceremonial law, right? Okay, so let's just rephrase that. The ceremonial law is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. You see that? Yeah, it's not that sacrificial law that matters. That was nailed to the cross. How could Paul say that? Because Christ had already died before he began to preach that. So that sacrificial law is nothing. It's done away with, right? Now, let me mention something else that I think is a really good clue to this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but we've looked at a couple of these passages of Paul, and so I'm not going to take you there, but I'm just going to tell you what they say. You can write these down. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Paul says the law is holy. He says the commandment is holy and just and good. Then in Romans 7, verse 14, he says the law is spiritual. Now let me ask you a question. What is that word is implying? Present tense, right? He says the law is holy. The law is good. The law is spiritual. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 to say that the fifth commandment is the first commandment with a promise. In other words, the commandments of God in Paul's day after the death of Christ are still applicable. They're still valid. Because the law is holy. The law is spiritual. The law is the first commandment with a promise. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Sin is transgression of the law. That means the law still has to be there for sin to be the breaking of God's law, right? Not sin was transgression of the law, but sin is the transgression of the law. But then when we come to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, what did it say? That handwriting of requirements or ordinances that was against us. Did you catch that? It's a huge difference, isn't it? One is done away with and the other is still applicable today. Argument number four in the case against the Ten Commandments. People say loving God and others fulfills the law, not obeying the Ten Commandments. You ever heard that one? I've had people tell me that. We don't have to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40, that the, that the law hangs on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And so that's all we have to do, right? You know what I tell people like that tell me that? Well, let me ask you a question. If you truly love God, are you going to have any other gods before Him? They say no. I say, well, if you truly love God, are you going to make any idols and bow down to them? Well, no, I wouldn't do that. Well, if you truly love God, are you going to use His name in vain? Well, no, I would never do that. If you truly love God, are you going to keep the fourth commandment and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Well, yeah. Well, then you just fulfilled the law, right? You just kept the first four commandments. 
Because the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. And if we truly love Him, we will keep those. And then the last six have to do with our relationship with our neighbor and with other people. If I truly love my neighbor, I won't steal from him. If I truly love my neighbor, I'm not going to covet his house. I'm not going to steal his wife, right? I'm not going to steal from him. And so that's not what it means when it says that the law hangs on these two. It's not saying that it does away with them. It's basically saying if you do these two things, love God and love your neighbor, you'll keep all ten of the commandments. Does that make sense? What, need, what people need to understand is that love is the fulfillment of the law because if we love God, we'll keep the law. If we love our neighbor, we'll keep, we'll, we'll keep the law there. So if you need something to reference on that, write down Romans 13, verse 8 through 10. Here, Paul clearly says, that the law is summarized by those two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Not that these two commandments take the place of the ten, but that they summarize the ten. And if you look at it close, you'll see that those first four have to do with your relationship with God, and then those last ten have to do with your relationship with your neighbor. Now, notice what Jesus says, what it means to love Him. John 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. He goes on just a couple of verses later, chapter 14, verse 21, says it a little bit different way. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Love always leads to obedience. Now, what about argument number five in the case against the Ten Commandments? People say, we don't have to keep the law because we're not under the law. We're under grace. This is probably the most popular one that people use in their case against the Ten Commandments. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Does grace do away with the law? I'd like you to look with me at Romans chapter 6. Go back one chapter. You're in 1 Corinthians. Just go back to Romans And look what chapter 6 and verse 14 says. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And so people look at that verse and they say, See, we don't have to keep the law anymore because now we're under grace. So is, is Paul saying that sin won't have dominion over you? Because there's no law to point out your sin? Is that what he's saying? No. No. I don't think so. In fact, if you do a careful study of what it means to not be under the law, it's really saying under the condemnation of the law. Okay? When we're under grace, when we're born again, we no longer have the condemnation of the law because our hearts are brought into harmony with God. The law says, keep me or you will die. We're condemned to die. But if we keep God's law, then we're no longer under condemnation. We're no longer under law. And there's another place in the Bible that says you're, you're, it's a law of itself, right? All right, now look with me at verse 
14 again. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. I am so grateful and thankful that Paul asks those questions to show us that is not what I'm talking about, right? To, 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 to not be under the law doesn't mean that it's okay for us to break God's law. Galatians 5.18 says that if you are led by the Spirit, then you are under grace. And you are not under the law. Or you're not under the condemnation of the law. Now let me give you a perfect example of this. A simple example to explain this to you. I want you to imagine that you leave here tonight. And you come right out here to Ashman Street. And you're going down there and it's 35 miles an hour. But it's late and you're hungry and you're tired. So you're doing about 45 or 50. And then pretty soon you see those blue lights in the mirror, right? And that cop comes up to you and, he, and you say, Oh, sir, sir, I'm so sorry. I've been over at that Unlock Revelation seminar and that pastor's so long-winded and I'm tired and I'm hungry and i got to work tomorrow and I just wasn't paying attention. Would you please forgive me? Would you show me some grace? And that officer takes your license back to his car and he's checking you out and he sees, Wow, you haven't had any tickets for a long time. And he comes back and he says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to let you go this time with just a warning. So what do you do? You hit the gas and you peel out of there burning rubber, throwing gravel on his car, right? Because you're under grace. Oh, that's not it at all. You turn your blinker on, which you never do any of the other times. And you're looking and you're waiting until there are no cars from here to Saginaw. And then you pull out there slowly and then you stay within the confines of the law, right? Because now you've been showing grace and your heart has been melted. Well, maybe not melted, but you're grateful, right? And so you operate now within the law because you've been shown grace. You no longer feel like you have to do those things that the carnal nature did. We all of a sudden have a desire to do what is right. We've been given the strength by God to keep His commandments. They're written in our mind and in our heart. And because we love Him, we want to keep them. Not because we're trying to earn a ticket to heaven, but simply as a product of the fact that we love God, we're keeping His commandments. The Bible says it this way, speaking of the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And you know what the Bible says about God's true people at the end of time? We read this verse the other night, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon, that is the devil, was enraged with the woman, that's the church, God's people, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, or other translations say the remnant of her seed. And notice what the description is. Notice the qualifying marks of God's people at the end of time. He says they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of of Jesus Christ. It says in Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 that those who do what? 
Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Revelation chapter 22 verse 14 says, Blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates to the city. So why is this subject so important? Well, we've already learned that the highest expression of worship that there is is obedience. And so if the Antichrist can deceive God's people into disobeying God's law, then he will have gained their allegiance and in effect they will be worshiping the beast, but in reality they're worshiping the devil himself. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 15 verse 9. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. Is that what it says? No, they, they worship in vain teaching the commandments and the doctrines of men. Remember what the Bible says about the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says that he is the lawless one. And then notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. Talking about the Antichrist. And he thinks to change times and laws. Now, let me tell you something. There are two extremes when it comes to the law of God. There's what we've been talking about primarily here tonight, and that is where people are throwing out the commandments of God, and I believe that that is leading to the breakdown of the moral fabric in society, and there is this abolishing of the law. That's one extreme. And then the other extreme is saying we need to legislate God's law because we need to get people back to God, right? And you know what? That's exactly what happened in the Dark Ages. That's exactly happened in that 1,260 years of papal reign. The truth was cast to the ground. There were laws that were made that said you had to believe what they told you to believe. And if you didn't do it, you were labeled as a heretic. And we talked about this the other night. An estimated 50 million people were burned and crucified and killed because they didn't do what they said they should do. Here is the issue. When the church and state come together, you know why this country has a separation of church and state? People say so that it's not that the civil authorities can tell us what to believe. No, that's not it at all. It's the opposite of that. It's so that the church can't legislate its beliefs. And that's what happens when you bring church and state together. They start dictating what you have to believe. And if you don't believe what they say, then you're labeled as a heretic and they can take you out. And here's my thing. You know, people might say, well, don't we have laws today that, that uh, you know, tell us we shouldn't murder? That's true. We do. We have those kind of laws. But those are civil laws. And the difference is... That law says if you physically murder someone, then you're going to be punished for it. But it doesn't say if you hate your neighbor in your heart, then we're going to throw you in jail. Right? There's a difference. We should never put into law that which pertains to the conscience. 
The Ten Commandments go into the moral fabric of a person. What we're setting up is civil laws to protect civil rights and civil property, not laws that tell a person what they have to believe. Especially when it comes to the first four commandments, right? We should never create a law that says that if you bow down to idols, we're going to throw you in prison. I don't think that's a good idea. We should never convict someone for worshiping idols. But if the church and the state begin to feel, you know, the moral fabric of society is breaking down and we need to bring people back to God and they decide that they should start legislating religious beliefs, guess what? That doesn't change a person. Right? You can't force someone to love God. But that's exactly what happened in the Middle Ages. And here's why I'm bringing this up. The Bible says that there is a second beast in Revelation chapter 13. We read about him starting in verse 11. And the beast sets up an image to the first beast who is the Antichrist. And that is how the mark of the beast is enforced. You saw that in Revelation 13. When this image is set up to that first beast, that first beast is none other than a church and state united that is persecuting God's people. What I'm saying here is this. Look, the moral fabric of society is breaking down. And we have gotten to the point where just about anything goes. And there is going to be a backlash. There's going to come a time when people start saying, we need to have laws to legislate morality. We need to legislate that things. But remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but give unto God that which is God's. I say, legislate civil things, Caesar. But don't legislate what I have to believe. So the Ten Commandments are very crucial when it comes to understanding end time events. They are going to play a huge part. And tomorrow night, we are going to look with striking clarity at this important issue. We're going to be looking at the Antichrist's boldest move. And we are going to talk about that. And I think that we are going to open the door to understanding more of the significance of this tomorrow night. I believe that more than ever before, we need to commit our families to God. That we need to do His will. We need to keep His commandments. The implication there is that we need to keep all of His commandments, no matter what the commandments of men say, no matter what the doctrines of men say, no matter what the pastor says, no matter what the teachers say, no matter what your former training may have been, your preconceived ideas or notions, we need to keep the commandments of God. There were a couple of guys who were discussing this issue of the Ten Commandments. And one guy says, well, I think I've been doing pretty good. So I think I deserve a passing grade. I should get into heaven. And the other gentleman said, well, tell me, 
what do you think a passing grade should be? And he said, well, in school, 70% was passing. And I think I've kept 70% of God's law. I should get into heaven. But remember what James said in chapter 2. He said, if you fail in one, you fail in them all. It's not enough, friends, to keep 90% of God's law. And it's not that we keep God's law because we're trying to get into heaven. It's just simply a byproduct of the fact that you have God's law written in your mind and in your heart and you want to keep the law because you love Him. That's the difference. And so I want to ask you tonight to make a decision. Are you willing to follow the commandments of God? Do you love Him enough to give up everything to be right with Him? Is it your desire To keep the commandments of God? If that's you, raise your hand. Oh, praise God. Let's pray. Oh, loving Father, I thank You for this message tonight. Lord, it's so clear. There are so many churches today that are teaching that the law was done away with. But Lord, that law is going to stand for eternity. It is Your character. It is the basis of Your government. And Lord, when we have Your law written in our heart and mind, we want to keep it. It's not that we have to. It's not that that we're trying to buy or earn or deserve in any way our salvation. The Bible is very clear. We are saved by grace through faith and not the works of the law. But they are simply evidence that we love You. There's a difference between obedience and and legalism. And Lord, we don't want to be legalists. We don't want to be keeping that law because we're trying to be justified by it. But we want to keep it simply because You put it in our heart and mind. You've given us the strength and the ability. And we love You so much, we want to keep it. But Lord, we're sinners. And we can't do it on our own. We need You. And so Lord, our prayer is that no matter what we've done in the past, that from this point forward, You'd forgive us of our sins and Lord, You would help us to keep all of the commandments of God. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen.